Thank you for joining NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology podcast featuring our neuropsychologist, Dr. Laura Jansen and Dr. Skip Wren, and neurofeedback legend, Jay Gunkelman. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. You can find Dr. Laura at jansens.com. Dr. Skip can probably be found traveling somewhere along the northern part of the United States as he's on his way to Alaska. And then Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. My name is Pete, and today is going to be a listener question answering session. Jay, Dr. Laura, how are we doing today? Good morning. I'm staying happy. That's what counts for me. So let's start it off. It's still Mental Health Awareness Month. Jay, they give us a month, so we got to squeeze whatever we can in it, because after that, mental health doesn't matter. We have a listener uh, asking, he's looking for a second opinion about his brain map protocol. At the moment, he's doing Loretta and HPN neurofeedback with a QEG brain map every six months or so to track progress. Is a QEEG considered comprehensive for brain mapping, or should I get a SPEC, S-P-E-C-T, scan or some other type of scan to make sure I'm not missing anything? Who would like to start with that one, Jay? <laughs> <laughs> Why is always everybody picking on me? No. Oh. Um, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, I don't mind uh, fielding awesome. questions. And... Um, you know, to start with, if you're in for therapy for a presentation of some kind of a symptom, that symptom being tracked is your primary outcome. Uh, all other testing is is what they call orthogonal. Uh, it's it's great to have something that kind of tracks what they're training, but ultimately how you are you know, if you went in for depression, how is your depression? If you went in for inattention or hyperactivity or, or whatever you're being treated for, how did that do? That's your primary outcome. And, you know, all the other outcomes are interesting ancillary testing that kind of track things that are being trained. And those are useful. Now, Spec scans are, uh, they're a fabulous assessment of the brain's function. They can look deep in the brain at subcortical sites that we don't really see easily with the surface EEG, which is cortical, but they, they also have a small amount of radiation associated with them. And the fewer times you do ionizing radiation, the better. Now, it's very, very, very small. Uh, radiation damage doesn't have to be very, very big. It happens at an at a you know molecular atomic sort of a level. Uh, ionizing radiation you know damages uh, DNA, so you don't want to do that any more often than necessary. It may be necessary to you know have a full evaluation at the start. Follow up spec scans less you know, less useful in, in some respects. Now, uh, EG, QEG doesn't have radiation associated with it. You might get goop in your hair, but uh, that that's that's the worst side effect uh, that, that you're likely to suffer. Um, and they do track progress. 
um, if you're training something up and you're suppressing something else down, did they in fact move in the direction that you intended in the locations that you intended? And that's useful, but please track the reason that you're there. If you're, if you're being treated for depression and your numbers look better, but you're not feeling better, what the hell do the numbers mean anyway? So you, you really do need to have some method of tracking what you're there for. If it's insomnia, track your insomnia. If you're, if you're there for epilepsy, you should have a, a, a log of your, your symptoms uh, across time. So, you know, your primary presentation is your primary thing to track. Uh, all these orthogonal or ancillary tests are handy dandy to kind of motivate and show progress of the things you're training. But your primary reason for being there is what you really should be tracking. You know, we're up in Chicago and we're kind of near the Amen Clinic. And I'm also associated with another neuroscience center up here. The one that uh, Tony, we talked about uh, John Hughes, right? The EEG specialist. He consults uh, with the Amen Clinic and this other clinic I'm with. The, the thing about the SPECT, which is, you know, if you've ever seen a SPECT machine, you know, it takes up my entire uh, little office here. Uh, they're humongous in the process, uh, is um, elaborate, you know, to get, get these pictures. And so, you know, I don't know if people are aware, if you haven't had any um, neurofeedback or any of these QEEGs, the amplifier... Um, I uh, can fit in a bread box if anyone remembers what a bread box and actually half, probably half a bread box. I mean, that's how big the QEG amplifiers are versus the spec scans. And you need a, um, a specialist to read the scans. Um, and not that you don't need a specialist to read the cues, um, but, you know, it gets costly and timely and, uh, you know, to have one of these things on site. So uh, they also require maintenance, which is interesting. So, you know, I talked to my colleagues there, you know, they talk about, you know, how much it costs A to buy the thing and then B to maintain it and all the chemicals and all the, the uh, upkeep of the thing. And so, you know, I'm with Jay on the, you know, kind of t take these scans with a, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth, take the scans with a grain of salt. Like, okay, they, again, they're statistical in nature. You're comparing these res results against a normative database. And I, I don't remember exactly how many people are in the normative database per age, but I know it's a handful. It's, it's really not that many. And I don't, I don't know if that, you know, invalidates it or validates it, but, um, you know, the, the point is, yeah, are, you know, what are the symptoms? Are the symptoms associated with, with the scans? You know, is there another reason that, you know, that is or isn't happening? And then you're trying to track their progress, right? And exactly what Jay said is, yeah, okay, we're going to you know, get a baseline or get a, you know, starting point, And we were looking for progress. And then, you know, I had, a, had one of these yesterday where, you know, they, they've gotten their training with neurofeedback and they've been there for X number of sessions and they're reporting symptoms that are improving, like they're getting better. The attention is better, the, the, the um, follow through, the less impulsivity, et cetera. You know, the mom's, you know, saying good things. And we look at the, the before and after scans and there doesn't look, you know, you look at the scans and it's not looking like progress, but that doesn't mean the progress isn't happening. So, you know, sometimes they're spot on, you know, sometimes they do kind of fall in line with a normative database and sometimes they're outliers. And I always talk to people about statistics that, 
you know, just because you're an outlier, you know, you're, you're out on the end of the bell curve doesn't mean you don't exist. I mean, how many times do we go to a doctor and say, oh, I have this ache or pain or this symptom, and the doctor says, oh, that can't be. I've never seen that before. That's not right. Or that's not a symptom or a side effect of the medication. That doesn't happen. I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> you know? So I, I think we have to use our common sense a little bit, despite the statistics and these double blind studies and the normative database, you know, et cetera. So anyway, long answer. And, uh, you know, there, there's a time and a place, you know, for spec, probably, like you said, you go deeper into the uh, subcortical structures. Um, and, and we talked last time that, you know, it's questionable whether the new thatch imaging can, you know, talk about monopolar structures in the subcortical areas and, you know, whether that, that can actually grasp, uh, you know, what we're looking for image-wise. Um, it's compelling. I've seen, I actually have that software. The, the, uh, you know, I can look at supposedly the, the uh, thalamus and the hypothalamus and hippocampus and hippocampi. And uh, so it's compelling to look at those things and, you know, whether those are accurate depictions, I guess that's still debatable. You know, for were me and you're coming to see us, I'd say, let's get the cue and uh, a, a symptom, a written symptom checklist of what the people are reporting and, and track. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Jay. I tend to agree with all of that. Uh, I, I don't, mind seeing somebody have a spec scan as an initial evaluation. Um, uh, uh, Follow-up, again, very, very small incremental additional risk. I mean, the half-life of the, 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 uh, first of all, for a spec scan, you have to inject radiation. Uh, It's it's either uh, radioactively tagged oxygen or radioactively tagged sugar and uh, uh, glucose. And those end up being absorbed into cells that are busy doing something. So they, they inject it, they wait a period of time and then see where in the brain did it get taken up and where in the brain didn't it get taken up. So they see areas of activity and inactivity. And yeah, that's, that's very useful. Uh, There there are uh, times that it helps with a differential diagnosis between a couple of different presentations um, and again, it's, it's a very, very, very small amount of radioactivity, but that doesn't take much radioactivity to end up having a potential problem. So, you know, total life dose is what people look at. And, you know, CT scans are more, uh, MRIs don't have it. There's different kinds of studies that give you different kinds of answers. A functional MRI gives you deep brain um, uh, identification of things. It's way expensive, um, but it, it's also not with ionizing radiation. It, it has uh, electromagnetic fields, but it doesn't have ionizing radiation. So I, I would focus on the symptom that brought you to the therapist. I would find some way to track that. Now, as a neuropsychologist, you have testing and more testing and some testing on the side. So you can find a few tests probably that all kind of point at the symptom cluster that they're presenting with. You'll be able to track their presentation. Uh, If it's insomnia, the Pittsburgh sleep inventory. I mean, there's a whole bunch of various tests that can track your symptom. And I think that's your best bet for figuring out whether there's success or not. That's the reason you're there. You're not there to have X number of more microvolts of some particular frequency band. Uh, that, that's all fine and dandy. You can track those things that are being trained. 
but the symptom that brought you to the therapist is what you should be tracking. Yeah, I guess I should have should have asked him. He said he's looking for a second opinion and about his brain map, so he didn't like the diagnoses. I mean, I don't know if he trained against the you know the protocol or whatever. Like you said, Jay, did he you know did he train for any of this, or did he want to get another diagnosis with the spec scan? I don't know. I have to get into it a little bit more, uh, Doctor uh, Laura. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Well, two things. One is uh, Jay made a good point that you know the spec is is actually you know looking at the the function of, of the brain and the metabolism of these chemicals that are inj injected. So when you look at the spec scan, it, it is that person's brain functioning. When you look at the QEEG maps, again, it's a, a statistical analysis. There, there's other information there, but the general uh, the mappings that, that we look at are statistical comparisons uh, a lot of times. And, and that's a different uh, piece of data than the, 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 the spec uh, necessarily. Um, and then, you know, I, I never, in, in Jay's right, you know, as a neuropsychologist, I, I don't quote need the maps. You know, we, you know, we've done traditional neuropsych testing, you know, for however many, you know, decades, you know, it's still, I guess, in infancy and, and certainly there's a lot of, um, you know, room, room to grow with getting these tests uh, validated so that they, they're predicting what we, we say they're predicting. And, and, you know, there's a whole line of problems with that. But yeah, I can do a neuropsych battery and kind of look at uh, executive uh, things and, you know, predict, you know, what or, or try to match up their symptoms with, you know, what part of what system in the brain it could be uh, uh, disrupted maybe the person needs a neuropsych exam, you know, if, if uh, yeah. uh, he's, he's looking to be a little more specific with what's going on, but I, I wouldn't use a map diagnostically. I use it to support things as a supplement. I would say that word supplement. And, and I always kind of scrutinize it anyway. People okay. aren't always their best self reporter, you know, and that's a problem, you, yeah. you may be totally insensitive to the change that's happening. Uh, it's happening so slowly that you're the frog in the frying pan that's slowly being heated up and you don't notice that it's suddenly gotten awfully hot. Sometimes it takes an outside observer. Uh, sometimes parents don't notice the change, but somebody stopping by says, gee, Johnny's really doing pretty well today. Last time I was here, he bit me and, you know, was jumping up and down and hyperactive. And now he's you know, actively engaged with this and that. And, you know, the, you know, little Johnny is doing so much better. So, you know, self-report, uh, family reports, sometimes those don't really uh, stay sensitive because the change is so slow and steady. So uh, uh, there, there are, you know, outside reports, testing uh, that, that can show the progress as well. Um, and it's a balance between uh, the, how do you feel, uh, assuming you, uh, or a good self-reporter, uh, is, is some outside testing necessary. And quite often, the therapist will end up having uh, uh, session data, uh, actually uh, tracking the learning curve of what's going on during the training. And that's also a very useful piece. It, it can show you that during, you know, during session, things are changing in the right direction. And across time, they're slowly moving in the right direction. So uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that you ignore anything and everything outside of your own opinion. Uh, pay attention to the symptom that brought you there. And uh, the, the therapist that you're working with should have uh, some kind of a set way of, of tracking progress.
patients aren't always sophisticated in being able to um, express, you know, exactly what they're feeling. And, you know, so many times people will come and say, I'm anxious and, and you go through all the testing and they probably are, but, you know, uh, could be ADHD, you know, symptoms or having physical symptoms of distractibility and impulsivity. And that's more specific perhaps to ADHD versus anxiety or vice versa. You know, there uh, could, could go the other way too, or depression, you know, all, all these things are, are difficult to, to tease apart from each other and, and they know how they've been communicating all their life or how, you know, their family communicates or just, you know, Google or whatever. So yeah, it, it takes a, you know, a diagnostic, uh, uh, procedure to kind of really dig in there and understand what they're saying and listen. And, you know, so, you know, the clinician still has a huge role, uh, despite all this technology we have available. Okay. Listener sent in a link, sweet tooth slash dementia. Can you get Alzheimer's by eating too many snicker bars? Anybody want to take that one? Is that I fake news? Skip, you hear that? Well, and, and I, I'm tongue in cheek a little bit, you know, what, I wish he was here so he can dump a question on him that he's got to answer on the spot. But the other thing is um, he, he's uh, super looking, you know, into um, gut health and Alzheimer's and uh, or dementia of any kind. There's different protocols that are uh, available to um, assist people with, with their gut health and dietary supplements and things. So, uh, but I'll, I'll let Jay laugh at the question. Uh, first of all, correlation isn't causation. Uh, if you correlate somebody eating uh, more sugar with the fact that they have dementia, the question is, which came first, the chicken or the egg on this? If you have dementia, quite often the brain has a decreased response to insulin and the voltages in the brain drop. Well, you have a craving for energy, not for sugar, but energy. And as such, you may end up with a craving for sugar that's due to the lack of your brain being able to produce the energy that's really needed for it to function. And, you know, so I, I, I'm not so sure that the correlation that they're seeing is causal. Uh, it may, in fact, be reverse causality if there's such a thing, you know, um, uh, where the dementia uh, change, uh, and we do see in dementia, a, a progressive drop in the voltage of the EEG for Alzheimer's disease and, and a number of other forms of dementia, including vascular dementia. If you have a sweet tooth, uh, your dentist isn't going to like it either. So you, you should, you should uh, figure out a way to deal with that in a, in a dietary way. Um, but if, if, if you crave a donut in the morning, it doesn't mean that, that you're uh, going to be demented by the evening. That's for sure. <laughs> well, the thing that, that sticks in my head is just thinking diagnostically. It, uh, yeah. The, the question, um, I guess is the question, but, um, uh, there, there's certain types of dementia that, uh, uh, have symptoms of impulsivity. So, you know, food cravings are one thing. Um, but, you know, do you have the uh, impulse control to um, w withhold and, um, you know, the frontal temporal dementias and things like that, where there's a lot of impulsivity, like people start gambling and, and uh, uh, do, doing all sorts of kind of what we'd call strange things, you know, going out in public with no clothes on or, you know, this kind of stuff where they, they can't uh, withhold the impulses. So, you know, those symptoms are diagnosed and back to, you know, they need a, a nice uh, psychological eval or, or a neurological eval to make sure nothing else is going on. The Alzheimer's, okay, people are worried about, you know, getting older and 
quote unquote, losing their marbles. So brain brightening, neurofeedback training. What is that? How often do you need to do that? Can you see that in a assisted living location or a nursing home where possibly not keep, keep with it? How does brain brightening work? Does it work? How many sessions is it? I know you guys like specifics, but I figure if people are worried about eating Snickers bars and getting dementia, if they're worried about getting dementia, get a brain map to show that you have dementia and then do trainings with brain brightening. I'll hang up and listen for my answer. Thank you. Just, just a simple bit of history here. Brain brightening as a term was coined by the seniors who experienced it. Uh, the, the whole approach started in the 1980s uh, in Florida. Uh, uh, Tom Budzinski, who's passed a number of years ago now, uh, had a project called the Ponce de Leon Project. Now, for those of you who may not remember early American history, Ponce de Leon was running around the South looking for the fountain of youth. And obviously there's still people in Florida looking for it. Um, the, it, what, what he did is essentially train people's brain to have a slightly faster background alpha. And your alpha frequency is your sampling rate of the outside world. If you have a higher sampling rate, you have better resolution. So the seniors who walked out of their session saw the colors more bright, the lines more sharp. Their memories, instead of having the tip of the tongue, God, what was that guy's name, you know, or what, what was that address or you know, where are we going? I mean, uh, all, all of those, you know, short-term memory, tip of the tongue failures seem to just fade away and they felt sharper and brighter and they coined the term brain brightening for the effect. Now, what do you got? A bunch of seniors in Florida who came up with a term, but it's not just that. There are actually researchers in Europe that trained the same kind of frequency that found enhancements in semantic and declarative memory, the ability to remember factoids that you probably have in there somewhere and may have trouble accessing. So your, your memory improves with that slight tuning improvement in the, in the back of the head in your alpha frequency. So uh, brain brightening uh, is in fact uh, a valid experience uh, there's a neuroscientific basis for the subjective experience, but you know, the subjective experience is not to be invalidated just because you don't have a theory for it. But at the same time, uh, having underlying neuroscience support for it gives it something other than just a subjective gloss um, or a sales pitch of some sort. Uh, it, it's actually a, a a reliable subjective experience when your brain is slightly faster and that's background frequency. Again, the alpha frequency is how many snapshots per second you're taking and a faster frequency is a higher resolution. Uh, arousal and performance. If you're under aroused, you don't perform very well. If you increase your arousal level, you perform better to a point. And beyond that, if you get further arousal, you start to become harried and un, unable to function. So 
having an appropriate level of alpha frequency tuning, not too fast, not too slow, just right, the kind of Goldilocks phenomenon uh, ends up being really important. Um, if your alpha is too slow, you need to speed it up to have better function. If your alpha is too fast, you may end up having problems with that as well. So it's not just tuning it faster, it's tuning it to an optimal uh, frequency. People that have alpha, they expect it between, quote, 8 and 12. That's what you kind of have to give for your answer on exams. Um, uh, and, and the 10, 11, 12 end of it, uh, including the 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, what's called fast alpha in neurology, um, is also part of that. So uh, we need to tr train the brain to have access to those faster frequencies to optimize memory. We don't want to have it too fast so that you become harried and over-aroused and can't perform as well. So if we had a neuronoodle clinic at a assisted living place, if somebody's worried about dementia, is this something they would do once a year, every quarter, every other year? Any, any guesses out there? Actually, kind of like riding a bicycle. Once you learn how to do it, you've got it as a skill. And as yeah. long as you play with it a little bit now and again, you don't lose that skill. Now, you might not have been on a bike for a long time, but I bet you could probably get on it and you didn't need to have your father run along holding the seat behind you. So, in fact, you know, my dad's past. Just if, if he was holding the seat, it would be really quite something. It's a skill. And once you've got it, uh, you basically have the skill. Dr. Laura, I see an article here uh, about depression. I read it. COVID's causing what? A threefold occurrence of depression? Go figure. Actually, stay away from the news. And I, I'm kind of guilty of not keeping up with a lot of the literature. So I, I, I uh, kind of leave that to Jay. But I, yeah, I'm more of a clinician, I guess. And so that's kind of my excuse of not keeping up with the literature. But I stay away from the news, especially lately. And maybe that's for obvious reasons. But um, uh, I do have Yahoo email and every now and then a news blurb kind of pops in and the news blurb yesterday was psych psychologists are overwhelmed, mental health communities overwhelmed by the uh, impact of COVID, COVID to everybody emotionally. And uh, I, I didn't actually look at that article and I, I just, to be honest, I just Googled, you know, the, the question, the um, uh, concept and uh Journal of American Medical Association, actually, um, I think it was an editorial, actually, but uh, the, the research, well, not, it was a research study, and it was actually run in September. So we're talking, you know, whatever, eight months ago. A while ago, ago yeah. Yeah, it was a while ago, and, uh, you know, right, right dead in the heat of it. And, um, yeah, they're saying threefold incidence of uh, depression. And I didn't look to see what the more current stuff is, but, you know, I'm going to guess that it's... Uh, multiplying in some ways and in subtracting in others, maybe with some hope of, you know, things clearing up a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's still, you know, you know, all these debates about the mask and I don't, you know, again, that's why I avoid the news. It's like, okay, I, I can't handle all that stuff, but um, yeah, the debates about, uh, you know, vaccine work, doesn't it work? Should we do whatever, all that stuff, um, you know, more confusion. I, I still have plenty of patients who, uh, I had someone yesterday call and said, hey, can I come in the side door? I'm just nervous about going into the waiting area. Of course, you know, we have that option for people. And, uh, you know, as I was talking to them, they're like, yeah, I was vaccinated. My kid was vaccinated. My parents were back. We're all vaccinated, but I still want to come in the side door. And, and that's not to, uh, 
you know, criticize anybody for, for yeah. that as much as, yeah, it's the fear. Like they're just afraid of going places. And, and actually I had someone, uh, older uh, person yesterday say, you know, they're afraid with everybody's masks coming off because, you know, um, you know, do we trust the people? Well, you know, into all of those debates and, you know, I don't necessarily have to go into all that. We all know what those things, those uh, concerns are, but, but yeah, there, there's so much uh, fear, you know, depression is one thing, but I think fear is, you know, kind of at the root of all this stuff. Like, yeah, where's it going? What's going to happen to me? And, and, you know, we're trying to develop hope, but can people, you know, what is that learned helplessness where you just can't believe that things are getting better and, you know, all kind of trapped in, in this place. And, you know, so it kind of opens up these opportunities to, you know, utilize neurofeedback is, is, you know, uh, supplement to them getting better. And we're talking about, you know, general health, and we're talking about, uh, you know, dietary improvements and, and but the article was just more about, you know, the, um, the mental health uh, staff are, are, you know, so overwhelmed. And the other piece, you know, with that overwhelmed, you know, people know if they go to psychotherapy is that, um, you know, the insurance companies allow you to do remote sessions. So, you know, just like the kids going to school, the therapists are doing their psychotherapy via Zoom. And, you know, we're doing this here. And, you know, this, you know, podcast is an hour and, you know, it's draining. And, and, you know, all of you who know, you know, doing a Zoom meeting can be draining and you're, you know, at work and you got to, you know, stay online for six hours and be monitored and stared at. And you're staring at yourself in a computer screen uh, camera. And yeah, it's, it's stressful for the workers. It's stressful for the patients. And, and again, you know, got to be hopeful that some people can adapt and, you know, we're, we're kind of wired to um, survive, et cetera. But, but yeah, there's a, there's a, a huge thing, you know, coming down the road in terms of, you know, what really is the impact of, you know, COVID, not just in terms of your physical health, but, you know, definitely mental health. Well, hopefully we're all staffed up for it. You know, the schools, they're going to have to ramp up with their, their counselors. We've heard Seaburn Fisher talk about that. Our own offices, you know, there's going to be some tipping point where everybody says, okay, it's safe to go out. I, I need some help here. And, you know, does everybody have enough staff to handle the rush? Don't know when that's going to be, but. The thing that kind of always sticks to me in, in these kind of things is think about other countries where there has been a lot of conflict, historical turmoil and, you know, wars, et cetera, you know, just uh, political conflicts, et cetera. And, and the post-traumatic stress in those countries and how and I'm not thinking of anyone in particular necessarily as much as, you know, people kind of regress socially into, you know, more primitive, uh, you know, ways of, of handling things. And, um, you know, again, I don't want to predict negative things as much as, you know, we got to be careful and think ahead to, you know, what does that mean? Are, are we going to, you know, become a little more primitive as a society and, you know, hope not for sure. And what can we do to prevent those things? And I was bring up the, the neighbor kid across the way. Um, again, I got a new puppy, long story short, he took the neighbor's ball and I went over to return it to him. And the, the kid was, he's probably 10. And uh, he, he grunted at me, like he didn't use, and again, I know the difference between autism and, and you know, hopefully normal functioning at some, just whatever casual level. And, uh, he, his language was just underdeveloped and uh, grunting. And, you know, is that a, a function? I don't know, it's all history, just a neighbor kid, but, you know, is that, that a factor of function of, um, you know, lack of socialization because everyone's, you know, trapped at home and you're not among your peers and, you know, your, your language needs to develop, et cetera. And, uh, you know, that's, that's just talking language development with my neighbor, but yeah, where are we emotionally developing and, you know, what, what, what is that going to do? long-term. So 
Did Jay had a comment? You know, Rollo May uh, had, had an interesting quote. He said, when your neighbor loses his job, it's a recession. When you lose your job, it's a depression. You know, and it, it, it actually has some validity here. They, they look at a at across time uh, unemployment and the rate of, first of all, the, the incidence of depression in the U.S. hovers around 10%. It's worse in kids 18 to 25, but it hovers around 10%. It's over that if you have more than one race. If you're two or more races, uh, you have an increased uh, incidence of depression. But if you're unemployed, it doubles. It, it takes a little bit of time. I mean, w when you first become unemployed, you might still have some hope that you're going to get a job real quick or something. But across time, the incidence doubles. So uh, it, it's important to, to look at the social impact of the uh, COVID. I mean, there's a lot of people that have lost their job. There's a lot of people who can't afford the rent. Uh, there was a moratorium on evictions, but that's gone now. Um, th there's a lot of economic angst and that doesn't help. There's also, uh, what is depression? Our, our internal states aren't very well defined. Uh, Sanskrit, apparently, I'm not good at Sanskrit, but uh, I had a, a professor who was, and, and he said that if you want to know about internal states, Sanskrit has words for every internal state you can imagine. Well, I never did learn Sanskrit, so our ability to describe internal states is really crappy. Um, what's depression? Well, is it like boohoo sad? Um, you know, mood regulation problems? That's more likely a left frontal phenomenon. It's a frontal balance uh, issue. If your left frontal area is subdominant, more alpha, less beta, um, more theta uh, on the left, you have boohoo, sad kind of depression. If it's all skewed to the right side with alpha and no beta, um, then you have an agitated depression or anxiety. And if it's at the midline, at the anterior cingulate, you end up having a motivation, lack of initiation. Uh, your get up and go got up and left. And if you, you know, read people's descriptions of their depression, you get a mix of you know, mood problems, agitation, anxiety, and this inability to initiate or motivate. So, um, you know, what are we talking when we're talking depression? What flavor is it? And in the neurofeedback world, a lot of people think of depression as just left frontal alpha, and it's not. There was a big study, 3,000 plus people in the study, an international study called the iSpotD study looking at depression. And as a group, they did not find left frontal alpha. Uh, there, was a, there was a subset that had left frontal alpha, but as a group, people that had depression, again, with its various vagaries of its definition, uh, uh, people that had depression did not all have left frontal alpha. Um, Suffin and Emery's work back in the 1990s, mid 90s, uh, basically after a decade of working, they found depressed people that had frontal theta, they needed stimulants. And they found people at frontal alpha that needed antidepressants. And your complaint of depression wasn't what decided which med you needed. 
they could predict what med you needed based on your EEG. So um, it, it, the depression isn't depression, isn't depression, isn't depression. And uh, we have different flavors of it. And until you figure out what flavor you've got, we don't even have a clue what kind of a medication you might need. Uh, and yes, the older style antidepressants had various side effects, um, uh, type tricyclic and tetracyclic antidepressants. Uh, they, they had particular kinds of side effects. Um, SSRI, SNRI, more modern ones had fewer side effects, but they still have side effects, uh, including suicidality. Um, your initial dose of the medication may give you enough energy to do something about the depression that you're suffering from. And uh, uh, initial dose suicidality is not uncommon. You know, right when Prozac, which is the first SSRI to come out, uh, not to pick on it specifically, but when it came out, uh, they, they noticed this phenomenon of, of uh, initial dose suicidality. I actually lost a, a very good friend to that. So it's a, it, it really hits home when you, you know somebody that this has happened to. Definitely. And we got to think of, you know, what is, there's, there's a great textbook, I have to look it up, uh, that talks about, you know, the evolution of, of mood, right? And, um, you know, uh, we can probably answer, you know, what's, what's the purpose of anxiety? You know, keep us from, you know, give us a little fear, keep us from jumping out of airplanes and running in traffic and stuff like that. So anxiety is protective. And again, there's a Goldilocks spot, you know, too much anxiety is, is unproductive and not enough is also unproductive, but that's anxiety, you know, the fight or flight system we're all kind of familiar with. But depression, you know, in terms of evolution, um, also has an adaptive purpose. It's to keep us, uh, so to speak, hiding in the cave, keep us protected from going out when it's cold or going out when it's dark so that we don't get eaten and destroyed by the predators or, or the weather. And so, um, you know, what, what part of the depression, you know, we're experiencing as a society isn't adaptive, you know, in, in, you know, we can all debate, you know, what that means current day, you know, our instincts, you know, trying to help us, are they working against us? You know, COVID's a thing and it is killing, you know, a, you know part of the population and, and maybe staying home and being depressed uh, to a degree, you know, we can all argue, you know, again, pros and cons, but but maybe the depression is keeping those of us home and, and keeping us from getting sick. There's also kinds of depression. We have seasonal affective disorder where the amount of bright light that you get uh, into your eyes that ends up influencing your pineal gland, which changes hormones and you know, brain activation. You, you can actually find people that uh, in the winter or um, if they're in an area that has uh, decreased sunlight due to cloud cover or whatever, they, they actually suffer uh, mood-wise. Um, I've got a good friend who lives in Alaska, and uh, she has to head uh, in the winter, not because she can't take the cold. I mean, she grew up in North Dakota, so cold is not her problem, but uh, dark is. And if you only have a couple hours of light during the day, uh, up in Ketchumac Bay, uh, you, you end up having problems. Now, this time of year, people have to tell people up there, oh, you know, you really should get some sleep. <laughs> you know, uh, you're up all day, the, the sun is up. This is the manic time of year 
and the depressed time of year will come in a few more months when the sunshine starts to drop down and they don't get the sunrise. They get kind of a dusk and dawn, but they don't really get bright light. So seasonal affective disorder is also uh, an, an issue. Um, uh, there are people that need bright light in the morning and melatonin at night in order to reset their circadian rhythm uh, because of seasonal affective disorder. And unless they do that reset, their sleep problem can end up becoming quite severe. Delayed circadian rhythm, which goes along with, with seasonal affective disorder, is actually a predisposing factor to bipolar disorder later in life. So um, if you've got a kid who's suffering from seasonal, from SAD, SAD, seasonal affective disorder, um, you, you, you want to get on that and treat it so that you don't end up having the, the predisposition for bipolar later in life uh, fostered. And as far as brain lateralization is concerned, I, you know, there's nothing right with my left brain and there's nothing left of my right brain. So, uh, you know, I, uh, don't do what I do. We need Skip here to, uh, maybe he's got some comments on Alaska and the climate and uh, getting out of there for certain parts of the year, but we'll, we'll ask him next time. I hear, I hear he has a searchlight that turns on with his alarm clock to wake him up in the morning. <laughs> I, I happen to have some uh, brain maps up on my, my Zoom when we first started. I just left them up there for my last Zoom meeting. I was doing some supervision with uh, some of uh, our clinicians, and I was wondering if, if the, um, the listeners would be interested in, in hearing uh, exactly what they're seeing when they look at a, a brain map, or maybe we can do like a, um, a case study, so to speak, or a, minimum, you know, a, a shortened case study to you know, look at, you know, because the, the patients will come in, and, and I'll explain to them you know, in, in as much detail as they're interested in, I try to keep it simple, but uh, explain a lot of, de uh, as, as much detail as they want, what these brain maps mean. But, um, you know, you, you just like with learning any kind of new vocabulary and, and things that they need to hear it quite a few times. So maybe that's, if, if the listeners are interested, maybe, you know, one of these- I'm interested. Yeah, we could talk about, you know, specifically how to, uh, you know, in layman's terms, what, you know, what's what we're seeing when we look at a brain map and, and exactly kind of what we're doing. And, um, you know, you're, you're looking at a brain map, it has, you know, 20 plus little marbles on it of different colors. And, you know, what exactly does that mean? And what should you focus on when, when uh, you're given this kind of information as a patient? It'd be great if we had video, um, because... Uh, describing EEG, it goes up and down and up and down and up and down, you know, and it, it's kind of hard to describe the waveforms without some visual. Uh, maps are kind of the same way. That map on the left is red over here and it's blue yeah, over yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, so, uh, it, it, you know, we, we can discuss things in general, but it, it, uh, having visuals ends up being kind of a uh, if you guys get the step. if you guys get the videos, I'll figure out how to get it on here. So I'm uh, I'm in. Uh, you, we can actually do a video recording of the uh, of the session, and a screen share um, of the session could then be uh, used as the as the video of it. 
You know what, as, as we're just kind of talking this through, I, I've got equipment here that is live stream. So maybe, you know, one or two of these can be a live stream uh, with a video like on YouTube or, or, you know, Facebook lets you live stream too, what, you know, whatever we want to do. But uh, that looks like that can be an extension of uh, uh, yeah. you know, th things we can do. It, it, it's not that hard to end up having a recording of the, of the session. Mm -hmm. I, I record my uh, consults all the time on Zoom and uh, the, the bottom of the screen, screen share, and uh, uh, click to record, and uh, you, you end up having the image. So you know, you know, I'm in. You know, in fact, I was talking to John Anderson this week. We tried to get him on this show, uh, but he couldn't. Uh, he said maybe next show, maybe that'd be a good one where we could throw up a video. And uh, God, I love to hear John Anderson and Jake Gunkelman going at it. <laughs> on, the, on, the, on the millimeter millimeter differences that can be seen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and brain map. You know, quite honestly, when I when I look at maps at step two, uh, I have to look at the raw EEG in detail, uh, uh, and then once you've looked at it in great detail, you have to clean it up of the artifacts and then map the ongoing average background activity, which is what the maps show, right. and uh, quite often. Subtle transients in the EEG are the interesting clinical feature, and they're averaged out from the maps. They're not averaged up if they're a small transient. And things like a single epileptiform discharge can end up ruining a perfectly good EEG. So, um, and a single burst isn't necessarily going to end up quantitatively showing up very well. So the, the EEG is step one. Uh, the QEG is an extension of the analysis of the EEG, and that's step two. So, uh, I, and I, I'd be more than happy to go over uh, any uh, EEG report. My typical approach is that I want to know the age of the patient so I can get a perspective of what they should be doing kind of lodged in the back of my mind of, of you know, my database of knowledge of, of what different age groups look like. And at that point, I don't want to know anything about the patient ahead of time because it gives me a bias. Oh, this is a PTSD patient. And I'm thinking, oh, right posterior temporal parietal junction. Oh, it's an OCD patient. I'm thinking, oh, anterior cingulate. Yeah. But if I'm looking at the right posterior temporal junction, I'm not looking at the left. I'm not looking at the anterior cingulate. Um, if the subjective experience report didn't include some other meaningful thing, I might miss it. So I like to go in without a perceptual bias. Um, I don't want to have my perceptual bias validated by some little finding, because if you're looking for something in a spot, you're going to find it. There's something over there, some little funny little wiggle. Um, if, if you think it has to be something in one spot, you will find something in that one spot but you shouldn't be looking that way. You should be looking with an open focus, uh, waiting for the data to speak to you as opposed to uh, trying to force fit it into some model of what you think might be wrong. You had so. me at hello. Next week, okay, <laughs> if it's on YouTube, it's on YouTube, we'll figure it out. Uh, so we're gonna clue everybody in. Heck, you can look at one of my brain maps. Oh, shoot, now you know you could be one of mine. Uh, well, <laughs> So we'll have Skip next week, and then uh, let's see if we can get John Anderson as well. You know, stay tuned.
thanks for the invite for the day and i i look forward to the live uh video streaming oh yeah as yeah well. so well you know we gotta let you take a breather every now and then Jay. <laughs> well it's definitely not to be able to look at me that's for sure <laughs> we thank you all for listening to neuro noodles neurofeedback and neuropsychology podcast dr laura can be found at jansons.com Dr. Skip can be found at drskipperin.com. And he's all, he also can probably be found somewhere around Montana, I'm guessing, right about now. And Jay Gunkelman, well, there's only one Jay Gunkelman on Google. Idea for a topic? Heck, we just had three or four of them go down just now. But please email Pete at neuronoodle.com. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Smash that like button on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Please play the copyrighted music.